0: What's up, friends? Fun show for you today. Our guest is Managing Partner at Merida Capital, where he focuses on structured investments in private equity and the cannabis industry. In today's episode, we're talking about investing in the cannabis space. We hear what led our guest to the cannabis space in general, what the process was like to get a license in Connecticut and build and operate a 65,000 square foot facility. He then explains what led him to start Merida Capital, and we examine the case study of his early investment in the unicorn rocket ship Grogen. We chat about what types of investments he looks to make and what the impact of COVID in 2020 elections have had on the space. As we wind down, our guest explains why he launched a SPAC in 2019, way before the craze began, way before SPACs were cool, and what the process was like. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. charts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors, and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YChart's comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YChart's professional subscription when you start your free YChart's trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. All this and more with Merida Capital's Mitch Barukowitz. Mitch,
1: welcome to the show. Oh, Meb, thank you so much for having me.
0: Last time you and I were hanging out in the real world, it was at the top of the world in Las Vegas, Stratosphere, and now we here here we are on Zoom.
1: I'd rather be at the top of the Stratosphere, I think.
0: <laughs> that was about a year ago, you know, and I haven't told you this, but I had originally, I think, seen you present at the first MJ BizCon I went to, which is in 2018. And out of the odd 100 people probably that I saw that day, there were about four that I considered to be thoughtful, (laughs) legitimate, reasonable. This was back in the first run up in cannabis stocks. And I wrote down the names of the couple people. And the rest, it was a little bit of a crazy scene. 2019 had some sort of retribution. After all, everyone lost all their money, it felt like. And we got to hang out. And then here we are in 2020, day after the election. For listeners, Context, cannabis stocks are rocking and rolling. Good to have you on the show.
1: Thanks. So let me ask you, though, you didn't answer the question. Am I one of the four people you wrote down?
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're right. You were in the crazy bucket. But no, it was funny because I went to the Institutional Investor Day. And as a quant public markets guy, I kind of sat in the back of the room. And I like to go to these events just to also take stock of sentiment and everything else and in 2018 it felt like 90s internet you had you could see where the money and the cash and the opening up of the sector brings out all types particularly in las vegas but there was a lot of legit people there too so yes you made the list just barely but you made the list
1: i remember that was a panel i was on with a uh, abner Curtin, who's done a great job with the send wellness and another fund manager who i think runs a small fund and um I think MedMen came up if you remember and i'd had some specific perspective on that on twitter right when they ipo'd and i just i remember talking about it on that panel and thinking i got a pro you know you get approached people chase you off the thing when really they should have went to the back and chased you for your ideas but it's actually interesting you talk about retribution though because i do think 18 when we talk about vintages i think cannabis is one of those interesting industries where the vintage even i mean for us i think we perform pretty well throughout but i think vintages for the retailer has been when you invested is almost more important than what you put money in, depending on you know if you knew how to kind of exit quickly and take your money, and especially in the public markets.
0: Well, I mean, that's the thing of, of startups and businesses of all types. I mean, if you look back at some of the best performing companies of the last 20 years, the Googles, the Airbnbs, I mean, they were started during bear markets, financial crisis. So there's always opportunity. Before we get to cannabis, which we're going to spend most of the time on today, You started out at one point as one of the trading bandits. Is that right? Did I hear that correctly?
1: My brother more than me. But yeah, intriguingly enough, when I was in law school, my brother was one of the Sows bandits. And just for people, you know, I'm sure you guys know, but maybe my part of the world, which will add to your base, hopefully of listeners, the people that could use an electronic system to take advantage of old market maker modalities, the way that they used to trade together on something called SelectNet. And so my brother and a bunch of uh, the early kind of traders who had access to technology could literally navigate between the bid spread ask when it was huge back then. It wasn't as easy to make money as you think. There were some hilarious moments back then early on, but what I was doing is I was in a stats class in law school and I kind of just dis- discovered that using a stats program called Lotus One Two Three, which in the legal world was just arcane, but we were using it for stats because I was taking a lot of the NBA classes too at BU Law. And I discovered you could actually like, do a data capture and actually capture trades and actually create like a actionable sort of program off of someone's trades that were successful. And eventually then in New York, about a year later, there was this whole conflagration of people doing that. And then day trading was born and then high frequency trading. And so we were really at the front edge of that. Yeah.
0: Would there still have been fractions?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, teenies. And I mean, it was so easy to make money. The guy from Staten Island who would come and hung over and just buy something and it would go up like a point and a half. And if he sold at the right time, he'd be fine. I mean, guys making 50 grand a day, hung over, out of their minds. Now, don't get me wrong. Within a year, that was like a very small window, two to three years of ease. You know, there were Broadway trading, day tech, all these guys and a small fraction made money. The smartest guys, you know what they did? And this taught me a lot about the world. The guys who made the most money were the guys who said, I'm going to get an economic deal with the back offices where I'm paying a penny a share and I'm charging two or I'm paying a quarter penny a share. The guys who aggregated volume and didn't care whether you made money or not and just made money off your tickets, those guys and the intraday, by the way, the other guys made a ton of money. Just to tell you like how my mind is informed on these little economic things. Because I was out of law school. I didn't realize how many ways you could slice a penny. Like My parents, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a very small entrepreneur. Like I knew nothing about these things. The guys who made the intraday margin loans were making on APR basis such insane money that it was like, okay, if you had like 500 grand to lend a bunch of day traders for the day who had no exposure, you had no exposure basically, and you were charging them the highest exposure they had that day from a net perspective, using like leverage, people had like 40 to one. I mean, you were, that these guys were probably making like 7,000% a year on loans that were totally secure.
0: I always laugh when investors and particularly the media talks about brokerages like Robinhood as being this huge democratization. And I'm like, really, they're like Sheriff of Nottingham. To be clear, an incredible business. But if you look at all the ways, still to this day, many of these brokerages make money, whether it's payment for order flow, short lending, interest spread, margin lending, all the way down. I'd say one of my favorite ideas, billion dollar idea out there, is to start a brokerage that rebates a lot of that back to the consumer. I don't know. Some of them do it one-off. So like Schwab, if you're big enough, you can set it up so you'll get some short lending. And if you're smart enough, you can just invest the cash instead of having it be at 0% on and on down the risk. But it seems like an opportunity. Anyway, <laughs> totally off topic.
1: No, you're right, though. But by the way, interestingly enough, I mean, it is something that I think once you're in a space like Canvas, it's so emerging, but I've been on the ad tech revolution, part of the day trading revolution, I've actually been really lucky. I worked at Market Access, which completely revolutionized bond trading and turned it electronic. I mean, I think it's been luck. Or, you know, sometimes you're always when you look for career opportunities, I think people like that you were at another emerging thing. And like when market access hired me, they liked the fact that I understood day trading and that I'd worked on the World Trade Center recovery grant program and understood regulatory sort of arbitrage and some of those, like, let's call them the areas in law that were a little more bleed together, right? Like a World Trade Center recovery grant program was mayhem for a few years because no one really understood who downtown deserved money or didn't. And so when you think of those things, it's, I've been very lucky, but I will say that Ameritrade doesn't offer free trading basically. Because there's not money in making it in some other area, whether it's selling the data off or selling you mortgages, or and I didn't even know that stuff back then. But I will say that in looking at how these guys made money, nineteen different ways, I realized I had a lot to learn about finance. I think so.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, look, I mean, this is great business. I mean, we go down a rabbit hole on this, but we talk about a lot of these apps in 2020 that the VCs are fawning over and investors love. But if you actually go through some of the math, I mean, some of these savings apps. You end up paying like 6% a year. But they're like, it's only a dollar a month. It was like, well, you only have 100 bucks. You want to do the math on that consumer. Many of them are predatory. Anyway, not, not the topic. So, all right. So, you did some general counsel, chief compliance, banking, origin story, rolling into cannabis. But you were pretty early in the cannabis sector, right? And kind of on the operational founding side. Give me the origin story. We'll get to Merida in a minute.
1: Yeah. So, I got really lucky. Again, another, I guess, just... Lucky, but unlucky was one of my best friends, roommate, business partner had been hit actually all the way back to 2000. He was one of our day trading partners with my brother and he had been hit by a car and paralyzed and just the life, his recovery was very heroic, but dealing with opioids was an incredibly challenging thing. And through our conversation, I mean, we were like brothers. So it's like, we would have these deep conversations about his life. And he just said, I I can't live like this. I can't live in this brain fog. I mean, this is a really thoughtful guy who went to UPenn, like really smart. And now he's every day, he already has a challenge. And the added challenge of opioids, which as most people know by now are not maintenance medicines, that is to get you out of your acute pain phase so that you can go on with your life. And unfortunately for America, they, you know, shifted into a maintenance drug, which is absolutely insane. If you know what opioids do to your body, the receptors, the toxicity, there's like four other medicines that have to be launched that you have to take with opioids now, right? around other things they do. So he moved out to Colorado and because of the non-residency, he couldn't own equity directly. He had gotten this like labyrinth of documents. And by then I had shifted to be the general counsel of Pali Capital, which was a pretty successful $250 million revenue operation. And I had a really large role in sort of looking at contracts, constantly doing things. I just said, Hey, let me just do all the legal work. I'm really nervous that you're not getting the stewardship you may need. And so in looking at those things, he discovered some business models that he could run, like renting out a building that would rent, like the we work of cannabis way before anyone else. And it was really forward looking and he deserves a lot of credit for seeing that. And through the evolution of that model, I built all the financial models around it. Cause you know, every year I started adding to my life resume. I wound down Pally. Now I was banking. I was running a family offices, a fairly large esoteric investing book. And what is more esoteric than cannabis? And so By 2010 11, I literally had been so immersed in Colorado and California looking for ways that he could enhance his business that I just kind of, I felt it was going to be so enormous. It was so obvious to me it was going to be enormous. And what was more obvious to me was that no one was paying attention on the East Coast. If you're in California, you understood the cooperatives and you knew how to get your cannabis from a medical card and everyone had a bad back. But in the East Coast, it was literally untalked about. And it just felt to me that something that is burgeoning in some place. And Colorado is an interesting combo of techie, but really sophisticated, but not quite California on the cannabis side. And I think, you know, I started to say, wow, if this migrates just a little more, this is a revolution that's coming. And so I started to really pay attention. And so we, in 2011, I had all these friends, just, you know, East Coasters, we all kind of connect in in the, you know, Baruchowitz, in the Jewish world, we all kind of know each other through Brandeis or other places we went. And someone that I had known in the business world had been out there for two years, kind of on the front edge of the cannabis revolution. And he said, hey, Connecticut's changing its laws. You should look into this. There's only going to be like four or five licenses given out. State's got three and a half million people. And you look at Colorado that has like 6 million people, but 5,000 operators at that time. And so I sort of talked to my best friend. I said, hey, if you can bring a team back, I can write the application like a 10Q or a 10K. And I, and I think we've got a real chance. And it was kind of interesting because we were working with this group originally and I sent them like this 150 kind of, the law came out and I sent them 150 item lists. Like, here are the things I need to know so that I can feel comfortable that our money is going to be well like spent and that we're going to do a good job in the application and literally heard from them. And it was like, don't worry, we've got the politics locked up. And that just kind of rubbed me real raw. And you know enough about me down, you've read my stuff to know that I'm kind of a detail guy. And I started, it really, it took me three or four days before I could have a conversation with them because I was so enraged by that kind of response, that flippant, like, we've got it covered. Because regulators, knowing, having worked with a lot of regulators, especially at Market Acts and Pali, in countries, and you know that the first thing regulators think about is, whatever I'm going to do is going to expose me to risk. Am I going to be embarrassed? And knowing that cannabis was this new thing and that Connecticut was the first limited license for-profit state in the country, I kind of got a sense early on that, the regulators were deeply concerned about the stability of the people they were going to give these licenses to. Were these guys going to be fronts for mafia? And so we put together a 1950 page application, which I wrote moonlighting from eight at night after my kids went to bed to four or five in the morning, almost every day for eight months. I would work from the road and do calls for nine hours while going around Connecticut, looking for buildings and building this thing with this core group of three or four guys in Colorado. And We raised 800 grand for the application itself from Wall Streeters, you know, guys from SAC to whoever, uh, all hedge fund guys, one of which is my core partner, Jeff Monat, one of my partners. I think you may have known Jeff through his, he was at SageRock and some other places, uh, an analyst, worked at Goldman. He was an investor. And Dan Lipton, who's now our CFO, was an investor. And all these guys, these really sophisticated Wall Street guys saw what we saw, gave us money for the application that could have gotten vaporized. And then we raised an escrow. And when we applied, the way that we described our company was so much more robust than other people who talked about their growing expertise or their how great the campus was going to be. And all we talked about is infrastructure, institutional backing, money, stability, safety, quality, all these things. and our score was so much it was the highest gap between a winner and second place out of any state that's ever passed the license since. And so now we own this license. We found out we were in Vegas, me and my my best friend. we cried for who knows, an hour. We were nervous because they hadn't told the rest of the state yet. So we knew and couldn't tell anyone. So couldn't tell my wife. Couldn't. I mean, we walked around for three days knowing that we had won and couldn't tell a person. And then they announced it and the scorecard came out. And next thing you know, we got, wow, like emails from every state that was thinking of passing its law. So now no one had ever done this before. We had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) And the rules were draconian. And we started to build a company and started to talk to doctors and patient count. And next thing you you know, that company's still doing amazing. But that was building that day by day and watching the structure and the friction that was just inherent in an industry where literally no one had information or the ability to source supply chain was an extremely eye-opening experience. Just knowing the questions doctors asked at that rudimentary stage, I think has really informed what we've done forward. And then, so about six months later, we were like, oh, we're done. This is great. We're not going to have to apply ever again. And then like literally six months later, I'm in Minnesota for like three months killing myself and winning one of the two licenses there. So, you know, this concept of MSOs that everyone trades, like by late 14, me and a, a core group of people were the first MSO essentially. And then guys like GTI, they won in Illinois and in some other place. And But we were like the first multi-state operator essentially. And we still had no idea what we were doing. And we were in the middle of spending, you know, 30, 40 million bucks at a time when no one had capital. And I'll just tell you one other little funny thing that used to happen because it's like so humbling and it's crazy to think about, you know, MJBiz. So- One of the first things there was an Arcview in like 2013. So Arcview is another kind of organization that used to aggregate investors. So me and my partner went out there in late 13. We had just won this license. We were completely mind boggled at what was going on. And so we're walking around Arcview and everyone's like, oh, I don't even know Connecticut was legal. And we got a lot of like shade from people, which it's funny because that's how you get early phase. Like everyone, like just like the for your world, the early quants, you guys would go and like like Anchorman, you'd all brawl in the back and see who's like a better quant. Yeah, because I used to hang out with the quants. And I know you guys have a lot of ego about like who's the best quant. So everyone's telling us how we're such idiots because we run in Connecticut where, you know, in Colorado, it's just unlimited. And then we, they find out there's only four of us. Definitely a little bit of a change of orientation towards. Us. Then they find out that we're building a 65,000 square facility. And I can assure you that is the penultimate question you get of show me yours and I'll show you mine. There were no indoor facilities at that point that big in the country that were legally operating. And that got people's attention. And then people started to pay attention to that limited license world because they realized that when you're only one of four, you could build this scale because you weren't competing with 3,000 people in Colorado. So that was a hilariously eye-opening moment. And that's when I said to myself, I remember at that event, I said to my partner, there was a guy on stage doing like a TED Talk. And he's like about to ask for money. And I said to my partner, this guy's about to ask for 20 million bucks in front of 150 people or 200 people, whatever it was. And the ask was 600 grand. And I turned to my partner and I said, we are going to make so much goddamn money in this place. Because that guy just spent an hour for this whole buildup to ask for 600 grand. People don't realize this is going to be so much bigger. Let's figure this out. And a couple of years later, Merida kind of was born out of that same mindset. So that was really long winded, but sorry.
0: No, it's perfect because it illustrates a few points that are such great examples, but also rare. It's pretty... Atypical to have such a massive industry that already exists, but shifting from black market to legit market. And you hit on exactly the the challenges and opportunities, less so today, probably than the early days of simply hard work, determination, effort, intelligence, skill, all applied to an area where at its core, the people that were involved at that point were, you know, essentially people that were involved in the black market farming and distribution. Um, So a lot of opportunity. And then, of course, Wall Street and all of the rest of the world, anytime the dollars start flowing, take notice. And uh, it seems like in the early days, traditionally, like the family offices, the individual investors tend to be the more entrepreneurial side. They have less restrictions. Talk to me about what was the uh, inspiration for uh, Merida? You didn't just say, hey, look, I'm Established, done with this, but you actually said, okay, let's start to put some money to work.
1: We moved on and also won one of the licenses in Nevada. And what, first of all, the travel was gruesome the first couple of years just because you had to be on the ground. Now, Connecticut was easy because I live right on the border in New York. So that was simple. But uh, Nevada and Minnesota were kind of grueling processes because you really have to be on the ground and look at the buildings and connect with people. And when you're doing the application, I mean, it's a couple thousand pages, you have to read every word. And as a lawyer, like nothing, things have changed a lot now, but in the early days, nothing went out the door that I didn't kind of give my own eyes on because I just didn't trust that a lawyer who didn't have what at stake, like for me, it was so entwined in my personality to just, I felt like every piece of paper had to have like my heart on it. And so I kind of really like, it bled out of me and I really wanted to, because I was also, you know, my, my partner was injured and this was like his vision to do a medical focus and really help advance the medical side. We felt like we were really helping patients and giving people access to a medicine that they hadn't had before legally. Like you said, I mean, the illicit market has been there. And, you know, as we talk about Merit Evolution, I'll get into that because that's an area that, I mean, I've probably spent the last year studying so deeply. In fact, I think the first time I really started talking about that was 19, early 19, like almost two years ago, I was telling people that the only thing you need to focus on is that shift of the existing consumer base from an illicit market to a legal market. So after all these states, you know, I didn't like to travel. And I also felt that some of the opportunity after winning all these states and developing the patient count and working with doctors and the VA in these states and going through all these things, that there was a perspective on supply chain that I had personally sort of started to develop. And like a Tetris team, I just felt like we sort of knew how pieces need to be rotated. And, you know, there were a few things that informed me. at first. It was like, how do I get 5,000 vape cards that I need? And it was like the people who own the vape carts companies basically wanted us to front all the money with no guarantee of delivery. So it didn't like that, really didn't like the research by Google way to get, whether it was vape carts or packaging or you, basically everything in early cannabis came from somewhere else. It was just borrowed. There was no specificity to cannabis. If you wanted a machine like Waters, Waters company, a huge public company, they gave you the machine that you would use to do daffodil oil, right? Or Jasmine. They didn't really have a cannabis machine in 2013. So you had to get the certain valves and you had to really be careful about when you shut it down, just making oil was a challenge. And just as a funny example, I mean, we were stripping out the CBD from THC in Connecticut to try to segregate before someone was like, oh, you can just order hemp CBD from Ukraine for like 500 bucks from a 55 gallon drum. Like, what are you guys doing? These are just little things. But then you realize it took you nine months to meet the right person that told you that. And so I really felt like that the license process had become kind of crowded and fraught. And I always loved, I think you just make the most money on the bleeding edge. And then turning that into a normalized thesis rather than starting out in, like, can I outrun every person? Because the truth is, you're going to eventually run into someone who has sharper teeth and is faster. And so, in my opinion, you start early and then you develop these normalized theses. And then, when everyone else gets there, you can actually be the provider or you can be the source of information, or you just have such an information asymmetric advantage that you can do better as more money flows. And so, by late 15, I really thought that one of two things had to happen for me to kind of get to the best and highest use of what I was really good at, which was structuring and seeing a macro picture and actually actionizing a thesis, which I had done at family offices and really taking like everything i would learned and putting it in the perfect Twinkie tube. And so I was so disappointed by some of the ways that you had to that search for stuff. So what I started to really think instead of going state to state and trying to win these licenses in this high pressure now, don't get me wrong. MSOs have done great. That if you're early, that was a great trade. And I still own pieces of some of these companies. So it's been an amazing personal journey on that side. But I started to look at what we were using, what we were spending money on. And it really felt to me that someone, an investor could get into these companies early or use just here, I'm spending 10 million on equipment. You're doing 20 million in sales. If I put my 10 into yours, you're going to do 30. Give me a piece of your company for just my business, for my exclusive business. And I realized that it was very hard to do that unless you also brought capital because these companies were starved for capital. And so Grogen was the first example of a company where I said, show me that you can acquire stores that sort of bear out the thesis. So before Merit even started, I got deeply involved in Grogen and actually was, was still having my investment banking license and actually raised money and invested myself and got a whole crew of people who had invested in other cannabis stuff with me, telling them they have no competition. This is going to be tremendous. And obviously, you know, It's great to pick the story that actually bears out the, look, it's trading at 22. We invested at 60 cents. But the reality is that was the first major ancillary company that I got involved in and got involved big. And it was the first investment Merida made because I just felt so knowledgeable about the company and so sure about their thesis and watching them execute that you could roll up stores and consolidation in a space that people weren't even, they were able to roll up stores before people even understood the metrics about rolling up stores.
0: I was going to pause real quick because listeners who aren't familiar, Grow Generation is essentially a unicorn, public market now, but you should have just retired. Walk off Homer with the first investment and just said, I'm done. <laughs> that's that's it.
1: I don't think I made enough money in it, unfortunately. But no, it's been great for Merida and it's been a flagship and it's been something we've built incredibly. I mean, we built that company. That was not an investment per se. I mean, I was deeply involved with Darren and Michael, the two executives. We spent hundreds and hundreds of hours together. In fact, their first deck. That looked like a real deck was built, the three of us. And I kind of, as a banker, just kind of took it out and figured out the square footage metrics and what kind of stores they should buy. And when they looked at an online e commerce site in 16, why we didn't buy it. And I mean, I was deeply involved in a lot of their fundamental decisions. And that knowledge, then it came to me that I really needed a vehicle because so many people were sending me their deals and saying, hey, can you bet this from me? You? You're the cannabis guy I know. And I realized that, look, as generous and magnanimous you want to be with your time, I was drowning in other people's forwarded decks and I saw some that I really liked and I saw some that were utterly atrocious and I felt like, you know, I could do a good job in a vehicle, but I wasn't an asset manager per se, although I had worked to build Semper, their REIT and some other asset management products, but I felt like a small fund to start as a proof of concept that I had just, I needed dedicated capital to make these moves, these aggressive moves. And I wanted to invest in just ancillary data, technology, quality control, things that were so nascent That just the TAM was 50x what they could ever supply day one. And so Grogen, New Frontier Data, Steep Hill Labs, and a few other fundamental companies. And I think, you know, I think some of it's luck. It's not just about being early. There was a lot of early companies that imploded. I think Grogen, though, was something where my knowledge and my expertise and my experience with them merged with an opportunity in front of them. And those two executives, Dan and Michael, have done such an insanely great job that. I couldn't have ever predicted it was going to be big, but I remember, I mean, but just to show you how hard it is to get to where you are, when Merida first launched, I mean, people, we had just lost in one of the high stakes processes in Maryland. And it was one of the most devastating personal defeats in my entire life. I mean, something that really, to this day, made me sick to my stomach. I mean, I literally got physically ill when I found out we had won because of the amount of money and reputational risk I'd put. And I was launching Merida a week later. So it was a devastating personal loss about like, oh, the momentum, we're going to win and everyone's going to be excited and FOMO is going to be on our side. And so literally it was going back to people and telling them we're launching something that's different. We don't need to win a license this time. And I think maybe that loss and the way we dealt with it with class and honesty and transparency. And then what happened like actually six months later was great because we launched Merida and we got a little bit of capital, but there was a lot of skepticism. And like you said about family offices, I remember one of the early Merida discussions the family office I worked at had set me up with like this billionaire who seemed interested. And he was like, I can't wait to work with you guys. What are you doing? And I sat down, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm building this facility and I'm also watching this fund. And he goes, oh, wait, this is the cannabis thing, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I didn't mean to put that on my calendar. I'm sorry. And he just gets up and leaves. So I was like, oh, maybe this is going to be, you know, on the way to the bank, it's going to be a little tough. And, you know, so we started out me and my co-founder, it was only two of us. We had one or two people moonlighting and helping us. But it was tiny and it was real slow. I mean, we, it took us uh, two months to raise the first $2 million. We put some of that into GrowGen, some into New Frontier Data. And it was extremely difficult because we had to explain to people like Maryland, what happened there. And then six months later, there was a group that won in the jurisdiction where we applied. They turned around and said, your expertise and what you guys are doing is amazing. Why don't you bring what you built or what you built that didn't win in and we merged. And that company now is very successful. And even though we originally lost, our investors are now on their way to making an amazing, given that they lost and it was zero, all of those investors are now on their way to a huge win. And um, I think that showed people that we were going to fight. And I think you want that in a manager, in an emerging space that this like little scrappy corporate lawyer who has done all these weird investments and talks really fast and is like super excitable that he's going to fight. And then my partner was more of like the ice to my fire. And, you know, after like six or seven months, but we still stared at Grogen and every day it traded like 2,000 shares and we were so excited. And so people, they used to throw shade at us on Grogen. They're like, why are you in this crappy little public company? And I just told them literally since day one, I said, just, you should buy the stock and just trust me, it's going to be big. You know, I didn't know anything non-public back then. You know, once we built it and went public, I was like, I I knew nothing other than I knew that they had no competition and that this space was going to be really, really big.
0: You're well on to Fund three now, but walk me back to those early days. Who were the early investors? Was it individuals? I assume it's at that point, startup, uh, cannabis, VC, private investing firm wasn't a ton of endowments and, and cowpers. What was sort of the evolution? And also, what's the give us the sort of 10,000 foot pitch on what are you guys looking at as far as themes and companies, et cetera?
1: You mean back then or now? What am I looking at?
0: Take me through both.
1: Okay. So back then, I mean, really the early investors were really people who had invested somewhat because i had shifted from the state-based thing. I tried to keep some distance between the investors who had done that on the state-based level and people. I didn't really go after the original investors too hard because they were already allocated and liquidity was an issue. And you just knew that they were like, okay, I've invested in three or four states. I'm kind of tapped out. And then the concept of this, like, it's not a direct company. It is a black box in an open field that no one knew. So that pitch to them after hearing me say, Minnesota, here's the demographics, here's Connecticut's demographics, here's Nevada's demographics, here's Maryland's demographics. Now it was like, just give me money and trust that I know what I'm talking about. I don't think that was the kind of pitch that people were wildly excited to hear about, especially when they were illiquid on the first three that they, it's almost by winning, they locked up their capital. It should have been like, oh, we lost, now you have all this capital that you wanna put into cannabis. But So the early investors were really kind of like entrepreneurs themselves, A lot of hedge fund guys in New York that couldn't touch it officially themselves. Lots of smaller family office guys and kind of every once in a while there was like this crazy investor who was like, I do everything from skydiving insurance to whatever. And that guy was, he wasn't writing big checks, but he had a network of people that were crazy. I mean, and some of these pitches went so off the rails that it was people walking in and like the whole room smells and you're like, well, that guy's already smoking so much that he probably, yes, right? So you just let that guy, you don't say too much. You just kind of stare at him You know, like the silent treatment, like Michael Scott from The Office, and just hope that that guy writes a check. But it was really small investors, which means you really had to kick and scratch. I mean, I probably had to do five hundred investment meetings. And Fund One actually hit ninety-nine investors at the end of seventeen when things really started to look good. And it was like, oh my god, we have to do like we barely are getting into Fund One. Now we're already into Fund Two. But Fund Two was so easy to launch because everyone had seen in action. And back then, we were really focused on business models and ancillary companies that we were using their products or services themselves, that really had a quality of being an underpinning of one of the stools, uh, the legs of the stool that cannabis would need to stand up. And I felt this really early, and I, I, again, maybe a lucky stumble. in I felt very sure that companies that served the greater regulatory good and the greater consumer good and the greater patient good, by scaffolding the industry, those companies were gonna be wildly successful. And luckily, that really was one of the things we looked for. We looked for companies that the TAM was just so much larger than their infrastructure can handle now that the growth rate. So we were looking for companies that if you weren't growing 100 150% a year, we weren't even looking at you back then. And we also were trying to make the most of, hey, we're writing a 500 grand check. Like, let's make sure we get some advisory shares for the fund. And so we did have this thesis of like saying to people, we're going to help you grow your business. We're not just going to invest. We're going to help you build your company. And with my governance background, it was very easy for me to sell them on, I'll help you scaffold the governance. But you have to actually pay. Every dollar we took, which was very non-private equity, everything we got free went directly into the LP. So it was so easy to generate alpha in fund one because basically all these young companies were so excited to work with someone who understood the state-based, that land grab war game, but also understood ancillary and broader sort of application. And then so fund two, we started to shift a little bit and look at more operational stuff. Like, hey, maybe we should be looking a little bit more, not just ancillary, maybe we should be looking, because now there was a huge event that happened, as you said, 18 was a weird vintage. So 18, all virtue of easy money disappeared. So by late 18, you had MSOs were not spending anything on state, they were no longer expanding unlimited amounts, just to get in every state, they were no longer selling these decks of 2022, here's how much population I could serve. That had totally disappeared. And I felt like, given our operational underpinnings originally, that we could be a fairly strong operator, number one, but in the context of a fund and use our ancillary. So that's when we started to really develop that ecosystem connectivity thesis that you and I have discussed, that we discussed that night. You saw, I mean, we had three ancillary companies speak, and I think you got a sense of that event, like how we had really turned a flywheel. You know, people talk about the flywheel of virtue, right? That connectivity. But I think you saw that night that we really were onto something. And that the companies were working together and they wanted to work together. And they looked at Merida as a hub for capital and guidance and really some important pieces, like whether it was instead of them just working so hard to get it, we were starting to become a little bit more of the lubricant that made their lives easier. And that's our whole thesis was always remove friction from our companies because that will give them an advantage. And so as we started to get more involved in operations, we stumbled onto a few things like the large dispensary footprint in Michigan for a really great price. One of the Virginia operations. And so as Fund Three launched, we were launching Fund Three into a more hybridized model than what we were doing in Fund Two. And Fund One was pure ancillary. I mean, we did invest in one operator. That operator got sold to Cresco, which is a public company. And that was a perfect example of our ability to source liquidity in a space that had totally locked up. And so we got really, really fortunate. And then Fund Three was launched while, again, the MSOs were still retreated. And so Fund Three, which has been, we, we, we are now much more of a traditional, you know, we have the QP side, we have the LP, we have the accredited side, we have an offshore it's we've built the infrastructure to be a more traditional private equity sort of hybrid, you know, opportunistic, but fund three has been able to look at that whole ecosystem, the 5,000 companies we vetted the 45 or so entrepreneurs that run these companies, the SPAC we built within fund three, that fund three is a sponsor of the operations The fact that we were the first to market in Virginia, The first one to bring medical marijuana to Virginia, even though we got the license eight months after three MSOs. And so we've been able to take everything we've learned from 11, 12, and 13, 14, 15, all of those conversations, knowing what people like you think and other investors, take all that knowledge and all that feedback in a really humble way, absorb it all, take it in, and then turn it into what we think is an incredibly powerful recipe for growth, for risk mitigation, and a thoughtful approach to the space. And so now what we really have identified, we've really been able to really dig in on our thesis. And now what we really look for is one of two things. We look for companies that remove friction in a fundamentally unbeatable way. And I don't want to go into like the specific of that because that's like a four hour conversation. But we basically, we think that we at this point can understand what is the core friction that can hold the space back, a company back. And so because we believe there's this normalization coming, whenever it's coming, that if we can find companies that remove friction in the right way, that when normalization comes, these companies are gonna be so fundamental to growth and normalization of the space, of the consumer, of the thinking, of doctor education, of medical, whatever it is, that that kind of company is a good risk at this point because the upside is so significant and we can risk mitigate through our ecosystem and other things. And so that's one company. Now it's easy to find someone who removes friction. It's hard to find a company that has that fundamental piece that we look for, that removing friction, that grows in a normalized space. And then the second thing is we look for companies that have no natural friction to their growth. So that would be like a license in Virginia where we felt like it's a great risk. Four licenses, eight and a half million people. So there's not much friction if you want to grow in that environment. And so we look for those two fundamental characteristics before we really get too deep. And then the rest is just hard work, grit, and the rampant and voracious consumption of information.
0: Let's go and talk about the SPAC now. I can't just keep glossing over that. You were also early to that as far as launching the SPAC in 2019, right?
1: Yeah, we did that early. I mean, it's, I guess, in timing-wise, we were a little early, and we also listed on the NEO and on the NASDAQ so that if we did want to touch the plant, I mean, the problem is so many SPACs got launched, and there's some of the SPACs that we're competing with for deals now. These are just traditional SPACs that are running out of time or some other reason, but they're willing to accept terms that we just don't find make any rational economic sense long-term. And our whole thinking is we are company builders, we're not just investors. And so what we do in the SPAC, we think it has to be something that provides so much long-term value to the shareholders that we're not just going to, you know, we're not going to cut off limbs just to get a deal done. And now we're competing in a much more crowded space. But I will say that when it comes to specific cannabis deals, we have a huge advantage because of our connectivity and other areas. And we just want to be thoughtful about it. We have 24 months. We're not in a rush, as most SPACs are. We're looking at a variety of things. We have a great team at the SPAC. And we're not in a rush, but I feel very strongly that when we do something, it'll be something that provides a tremendous amount of long-term value to stock. But now there's 9 billion SPACs out there. So in one way, the world kind of caught up. And these SPACs are just people who opportunistically like the structure and are willing to just do anything to get a deal done. And so in 2017, 18, I watched a lot of people do cannabis deals. And I sat on the sideline of some of those deals and said, wow, that stock's trading at 15. And then, you know, a year later or two years later I'm investing in fund 3 at 20 cents some investors got pummeled I'm willing to be really patient because I think we have a lot of confidence that our investors are patient as well and they've seen such fund 1 and fund 2 returns are kind of strong we have a lot of institutional confidence at this point so we're not in a rush we're really we just think that the shareholders deserve our patience it's not about just building your legacy there's no legacy ever. I mean I think most people would rather be wealthy than famous so I'm trying to be the guy no one knows who's just doing really smart transactions that people go, hmm, I like when that light lights up in people, the the light in people's eyes light up and they go, wow, you guys really were thoughtful. And it's not just me. I have a huge team of brilliant people that deserve probably more credit than me at this point because they've made me far better than I ever imagined I could ever be as an investor. And some of it is just being open and listening to the models and digging in. But I think at the end of the day, it comes out of hard work in everything.
0: Talk to me about 2020 for a little bit. We've kind of gone through this evolution of this nascent industry that's growing up. I'm curious to know if you think that like early days this kind of arbitrage of hard work and intelligence and effort applied is it a scenario where there was a lot more low-hanging fruit then versus now? I mean, are you still seeing a ton of opportunity in 2020 as, you know, there's been a lot of more traditional players getting involved in both VC, private equity, public markets, operators, et cetera, public companies in other industries. What's 2020 look like? And oh, by the way, feel free to talk about the pandemic and how that's affected what's going on too.
1: So just in terms of opportunity set, I think the public markets have, it's pretty clear what the articulation is there other than maybe Grogen and there's a few other ancillary companies. Those are producers who are trading Canada, And they're listed, you know, the F stocks with the F at the end, the four letters with the F at the end or five letters. And those are are largely operators directly producing cannabis for multiple states. I think a lot of the value, if anything, we feel like it's probably the easiest time for us to invest. It's, It's never been better. The pandemic sucked a lot of capital out of the space. Pricing got a little dicey. And so many people have gotten pummeled that our competition for deals has never been lower in some ways because we're not looking to do that shiny object, big target investing. In fact, I'm writing an article right now called in cannabis, bigger is better till it ain't. And I think that if you just care about returns, then who cares if you're in the biggest deal or the biggest syndication or so we tend to stay very focused on value and alpha rather than what people think is hot. And I think for us, I have to say, I mean, we feel like there's a ton of things that are just obvious winners that other people just don't care about. Maybe it's, too hard to penetrate into the thesis, or maybe they just don't have the expertise or the legacy or the connectivity to these companies to really evaluate it. But medical data is something we think is like just such an obvious winner when it comes to insurance reimbursement, workers' comp insurance, the clear and unabated movement to a more normalized medicine. Again, normalization is a word you should keep in mind because it's, what does this look like when that $70 of illegal consumption goes into the legal market? And obviously, COVID, and I'll get to that in a second, but COVID is clearly accelerated and I'll explain how. But just to finish the thought, there's a lot of normalization that's coming. And so we've spent a tremendous amount of time working with New Frontier on what does the consumer think? How do you get that data? What does that look like in the traditional world? So one of the products that I'm probably the most excited about, I mean, I get so excited, but I can't really talk about it because it's, it's about to explode, is the, how does ad tech, how is ad tech world? Going to look at the cannabis consumer, the 45 million people or more who consume more than once a month, who their online activity has never translated to their cannabis activity because they weren't able to do that online. So these are huge consumer taxonomies that have almost no data on them. I mean, think about it. When you go to buy a car, man, they know a lot about you from your online traffic or your Gmails or other things. And they'll say, hey, you Google, you know, Toyota 4Runner, I don't even, I'm just making up, like you, you Google a car. They're, you're going to get a lot of car-related ads in the next couple of weeks. You know you're going to. And you know what? In cannabis, you don't really understand how to even find those people. So I love the concept of owning data and having a huge consumer profile base where you can say, hey, you're a cannabis brand, you're a coffee brand. You're, maybe Toyota's discovered that you know people who smoke cannabis love Priuses. That data is worth so much money. Those are the kind of boring things that we're digging so deep into. So when you say like, hey, is it crowded? Is it over? Is the trade over? No, the trade is, it's just getting going in some ways.
0: On that topic, I was laughing because I was like, I'm just picturing the Venn diagram with cannabis consumers and online pizza ordering from Domino's is like a pretty 99% correlation. But the funny thing about this is I was listening to a podcast the other day, and this was specific to the financial advisory space and investment management. And the guy, this is Michael Kitsis podcast. And so it's focused on traditional planning, but the marketing guy said, you know, they spent a ton of money and it's kind of a interesting equation in our world because you can pay a cost of acquisition of $10,000 to acquire a client and it'd still be a great deal because of the long-term perspective. But...
1: Oh, yeah. By the way, I did ad tech. I used to write ad tech patents for startups in 2007 when I was moonlighting from market access.
0: So... The point of this long-winded story was that they found that a high correlation, the best performing subset that ended up converting to clients, uh, high net worth clients, was bird watchers, <laughs> people that, that that was their interest as they uh, their their interest was bird watching. And that had the highest conversion rate. <laughs> it's no longer a secret. So
1: do you remember the click fraud days? And lo- like I said, I was lucky to have done some dabbling in ad tech and had invested a bunch in ad tech companies in 07 and 08. You remember the private jet shares, one competitor would find out the budget of their competitor and they would just keep clicking because they were paying 50 bucks a click because you know, if you Google private jet shares, they think they're getting a $15,000 a year client and they would drain their competitors' budgets. (laughs) And I don't know if you remember, like, I don't know if it was Marquis or someone, this was like a real war online. But if you think about, it's not just about conversion, it's just understanding who that consumer is right now. We're talking like the beginning. We don't know what the cost of acquisition and other things are, but I will tell you this much. New Frontier Data has, has a product out there and it just launched based, because they had, you have to get the data first. And it's like a river. If you're not standing in the river when this is happening, you'll have no idea what to collect, why to collect it, what trend. And so New Frontier just launched this product. And I think they have 4X the amount of clients that they originally expected. And so that's a private company in our portfolio, New Frontier Data. But we've been invested since 16 in Fund 1. And Fund 3 is still aggressively investing because we feel like, We understand. Again, I think one thing that's really important for us is we've developed this confidence that we're seeing things and we've asked the right questions and that as a team, we have enough of a cutthroat, rigorous investment process amongst each other that discussions are robust enough that we're going to get to good answers. And if we shouldn't be adding on to something, then we won't. But if we should be, then why would we build something and not take it over the mountain? You want to be a mountain and then you want to be a valley. Now we're in a place where we can be a valley in Canada right, and start collecting the water, not having it run off everything. And I think that's the most exciting thing is taking this to the next level where it feels to me like things are more definable. Companies are much more mature. And yet pricing hasn't significantly changed in nearly two years because, like you said, it was easy capital in 17, 18 kind of went from easy capital and everyone making 50% gains overnight into like getting annihilated by the end of the year. 19 was just an absolute disaster from a capital perspective into the vape crisis. And then to bring the question, what you asked before, is now COVID. So you had the vape crisis, which really put a dent in companies and really froze the industry for a few months until it was discovered that no legal products had anything to do with the vape crisis that actually hurt people and injured them. And now COVID, which created a huge dislocation up front, but might be the most fundamental accelerator that the cannabis space has even seen or ever seen. Largely because of other things that were happening, which COVID has now really crystallized, which was you already had a rapidly evolving professional regulatory scaffolding for states. Well, what happened in COVID? Those regulators had to step up and figure out how to keep cannabis dispensaries either open or from a medical perspective, how to make sure that they're considered like pharmacies. They were deemed essential early on. And that's they were deemed essential before food was deemed essential. So that was a huge thing. And I don't think you get that unless you have professional regulators, not the guy who lost the bet at the Department of Health in 2015. And that guy ran the program for six months and before he just tapped out. And I mean, California, you know it's been just a mess for California for three or four years, but now the BCC is getting their hands around how they should be regulating it. And I think COVID really got people to take a step back and say, how do we, this is a real industry now. There's a million consumers in our state. How do we deal with this so that we end up with, the best regulations, the fairest regulations, a view to the consumer or the patient, you know, medical patients. And I think the other thing is while the pandemic has been an absolute national tragedy, we can't have more compassion for people who have lost family members and it's been awful. It really has driven significant demand amongst existing cannabis consumers. But more importantly, because of safety and other considerations, it's actually created a huge shift from the illicit market to the legal market. And that, I think, is going to be the fundamental story of 2021, where instead of 15, 20 of legal, billions of legal sales, you're going to have 25, and the illicit market, instead of being 65, is going to be 60. And you're going to start to see that cannibalization go on hyperspeed. And when that goes on hyperspeed, understanding what the next phase of normalization is, whether it's an ancillary company that serves, again, a consumer-facing business. Whether it's a consumer package good company, a packaging company, whether it's a producer who's in the right state, like in Illinois that is shifting so quickly or in Michigan, understanding those things, I think, is why we feel like this is our moment at Merida. We have never been better prepared and better positioned. And the industry has never been in better position. There's professional operators now. These aren't the guys that are growing. You have CEOs who are sitting in the executive suite and strategizing. And so they're using more data and analytics and more automation. Because they're not the grower who tells you that if you use an LED light, you're gonna start the downfall of society. These are not the passion. It's not like passion players are bad, but the early passion players were not people who have corporate governance backgrounds or cared about investor returns. They just wanted to grow the best products. And while those people are still growers at places, they're not growers who are also on the phone raising capital while they're trying to attend to a plant. And I think that separation between a grower and the professional operator now is another thing that even before COVID was happening, but has now gone on hyperspeed. Now you have professional compliance people, health executives, and much like chiropractic care in the '80s that wasn't reimbursed. I think you're going to see more focus on medical than anyone can even predict. And I think that's the one thing that when everyone talks about the Safe Act or what's going to happen in the federal legalization, no one really talks about medical research being the most neglected part of the cannabis space because one person in Mississippi controls who gets those plants to research. Once it's egalitarian and everyone in the world can do medical research, doctors are gonna to start to see that epidemiological data, that empirical data become real data. You know, you're gonna see a lot of white papers, and next thing you know, it's gonna be an arrow every doctor's quiver. If you have cancer, if you appetite, neuropathy, all the things that go with cancer, everything that goes with pain, sleep, and you're gonna to start to see some real disruption and dislocation in the medical field. And then reimbursement comes. And people who might need it for anxiety are gonna to wanna to get medical cards. And I think you're gonna find One of the most under sort of explored areas of cannabis is going to be the medical side. And like I said before, if you see the obvious that is non-obvious to other people and you have some corporate confidence, you can be early and structure things and not feel like you're absolutely on the deep bleeding edge. So whether it's medical data or whether it's a company that has some IP around a transdermal or whether it's a cream that can help people who are on antipsychotics and and may have sexual response. I mean, real medical problems are going to be addressed by some of the deconstruction of the cannabinoids in cannabis. So the medical is another just obvious thing. And then again, on the heels of COVID where now you have a better regulatory scheme, you have more people focused on safety than ever before and curbside delivery. Colorado, the most mature market in the world, no delivery. COVID hits, hey, Delivery sounds like a good idea. So all of these fights, and then obviously you have uh, the five ballot measures. I mean, something happened the other night that has never happened in campus. A new first and a real first. South Dakota became the first state to ever pass a medical and recreational law in one shot. And you really can't, you can't even tell people how big that is because they'll be like, South Dakota, it's, you know, what is there, 750,000 people in the state or something like that. But what it means is it's going to be the first state to really skip medical as a normalizing step for regulators and people in 2015, you would never skip medical. You couldn't because people had to feel like there was this constraint around the program so that they didn't want, you know, like the Jeff Sessions attitude of like, Hey, if you smoke cannabis, the next thing you know, everyone on your block, you're going to be out there with knives trying to murder them or reefer madness kind of stuff. And I think when you get to this, this real, this South Dakota that the world doesn't come to an end when someone uses it for epilepsy, a pediatric patient, the world doesn't come to an end when your neighbor pops an edible instead of drinking that night. And I think Colorado's already shown that and other states where it's mature. And that is a watershed moment because there's still a few big states, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, states, real populations who haven't made significant moves to even pass medical bills yet. And so if they do that in one shot.
0: I mean, it feels inevitable. And In every election, you have more and more dominoes falling and not only in cannabis, but in somewhat related industries. You mentioned kind of the psychedelics and alternative medicines. I've actually been surprised how quickly those are opening up in spaces. And it just makes sense. Give me a prediction. When are we going to get a banking law passed? We gotta well, I I was getting ready to say we have a new (laughs) new president in place, but by the time this comes out, it still might be not decided. What's the future look like for um, the regulatory?
1: It's hard to predict that because obviously it's really hard to predict if you don't know first of all, remember in Congress there's some races that are still undetermined. I mean Republicans could end up flipping the house, it looks like now. But I think this, you used a word that I've used on Twitter, I've used it a lot. In order to calm people's nerves, I've often said that I don't know why anyone cares about Blue Wave or otherwise, Not, not that they shouldn't care, but that the inevitability of cannabis growth, how many times have I used that on Twitter in the last three weeks? This is inevitable because people don't want to consume in the illegal market. In fact, there is this almost bravado of people saying, I will not consume in the illegal market anymore. And so I think on the banking side, It's pretty imminent. I would say that something that allows for traditional financial institutions to participate, whether it's banking or lending or other things, is definitely a 2021 thing for sure. That is absolutely, I feel, a 2021. If I had to guess, there's going to be, this is hard to predict, so I'm going to make a very specific prediction. I would guess that you're going to see some noise about maybe an EO, like an executive order coming out, whoever's president. And I could actually see. so here's a prediction. I think Trump might, in his lame duck, make some noises about that. And that will create enough momentum that you will see, especially with the states that just passed. Missouri is going to be one of the best markets that no one talks about. It's like Oklahoma. So those 190 operators, remember, as you get bigger, you get a bigger constituency who can push harder. So the momentum that you have more state delegations who have pressure now. And I do think, and I said this somewhere, I don't even remember. But I've always been a little bit disappointed that national political figures who are in states that have very progressive voter bases haven't been more active on the local level. But I think at the federal level, there's so much momentum for something to get done. It's not acceptable that people don't have access to traditional capital, that people can't use their credit cards or their debit cards. And I mean, you don't want to like insurance is going to reimburse for cash. I mean, how do you do that? So I actually think it's probably first half of 2021. I always caution people, and this is caution on the five ballot measures as well. Nothing changes overnight. You still have to build the law. You have to build the framework. And so it's not like tomorrow someone's going to walk in and buy New Jersey. Like in New Jersey, the biggest Google, I think the highest Google search the night of the election was like how to roll a joint. It's not like that. I don't know if you saw that, but um, <laughs> that's not the kind of data I normally consume. But it's worth New Frontier does get data on trending things on either Twitter or Google, and it's worth knowing that these things. But first of all, uh, let me explain to the, the patient base of New Jersey there are these things called pre-rolls, you'll be fine. You don't have to know how to roll a joint to consume it that way. So I think early 21.
0: That's funny. Well, this is what politics has driven everyone to. They're just anxious and had enough. My thesis had been that given that it seems inevitable and what we know about politicians, there's two things they love. They love taking credit for something and they also love revenue. So in my mind, it's such a no-brainer. And I actually thought that it was potentially going to happen in 2020 as posturing before the election of either side trying to really push it. And I thought the executive branch, like you mentioned, might have tried to outwoke the other side by saying, look at this, look what we're moving forward. Didn't happen, but still might, still might.
1: It's the political version of name that tune. I'll do it in two notes, Meb. But, you know, I think the problem with that, though, is again, I think it goes back to that federal local interchange. It's not like Chuck Schumer's calling up Andrew Cuomo and saying, we should get a bill done in New York, which actually should happen more. If you really believe it should be legal at the federal level, Chuck Schumer, then why wouldn't you be working? You're one of the most powerful figures in New York. It's not like you only have to focus on the Washingtonian, but that just shows you that some of that is like empty signaling. But I will say that the revenue is a big issue. But what we've seen in a lot of these states is there's a lot of hands that want to shape it and because people want to shape it whether it's unions or bankers or whoever it might be uh growers uh nursery owners whoever feels like they should have their hand in that gets in the way
0: are you guys solely focused in domestic do you do international i mean not canada would be the obvious closest but what does the rest of the world look like i mean there's obviously some massive markets of cannabis users historically illicit. I mean, all of Asia, Africa. I mean, on and on. What's that look like to you?
1: Well, we've done some really specific idiosyncratic investments in Canada that we think are niche, but they're huge revenue. Like we feel very good about we've made an investment in this company, Premium Five, in Canada, that is like a white label supplier of very specific concentrates that are very difficult and require a lot of historical expertise. How the people got the historical expertise, no idea. But ultimately there. so we look for, again, a very specific company that removes friction, even in Canada or otherwise. So we like what they're doing. We've looked at a bunch of Canadian things recently. We, we think we, we found a few that are interesting because of what they're doing in Europe. So more broadly, we do own a very large chunk of a lab in Italy that is going to be one of the certified labs for APIs, active pharmaceutical ingredients to the broader European market. Europe is much more First of all, everything in Europe is all country-based. Our federalist system is the only system in the world for cannabis like this, where states can pass and the federal government can do nothing. But that's also a great quirk because in reality, that's why nothing matters at the federal level. This space is moving forward no matter what happens. So no one should be like, oh, the federal government can pass things. I want to short cannabis stocks. It's a bad move. You're going to get smoked eventually long-term. So not a great move. But in terms of Europe, it's very pharmaceutical-driven. It's very centralized. So the things we're looking at that we find very interesting... Are again these natural low friction companies or friction removers for that specific thesis of how do you become a company that provides expertise or product or something to a market with very low friction? Three years ago, everyone and their brother in Canada was rushing into Malta. Malta was going to be the place i'm going to dominate Europe out of Malta. I mean that in two dollars nowadays gets you a metro card i don 't know if it does get you a metro card actually, but the point is everyone rushed into these thesis and said malta 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 or and I think what you see now is a much more thoughtful approach, but there's definitely some Canadian companies doing interesting things in Europe, Africa, Asia, those consumer markets aren't there yet. And those are much more centralized. You see some crazy things in this space, but I think in Asia, that's like a 2022, 23, you're going to have to see those markets get comfortable and cause you're not going to get cannabis entrepreneurship until you have the consumer base. And I, I, China, I don't know how that market opens for cannabis yet. But it's interesting to notice societies that have a much more natural, organic, holistic, you know, whether it's Buddhist societies or Shinto, or even in India, people have a connection to plants and herbs and not having a legal market at all, which I find an irony. And it's definitely something long term, I'm getting much more involved. I'm doing a lot of, I've definitely done as a little research project, a look at those markets. And we've put ourselves out there enough where people have now reached out. And so I feel like there's a few things, but I don't find anything that feels like it's a fire under my feet just yet. But, you know, man, I'm always on the lookout. And once we get, we're a dog with a bone. Once we think we found something that's the obvious hiding in planes, or that is non-obvious to other people that we think is obvious, we do tend to spend a lot of time, even if we have to be patient.
0: As we wind down 2020, hopefully we do, the alien invasion, and we still got two months left. Who knows what's going to get thrown at us. Well, let's say the world goes back to normal next year. What's the future look like for uh, Merida? What uh, you guys, kind of the 10 year plan, you're going to continue to invest? Is it wrapping up more SPACs? You got any other ideas? Uh, you got a bit of a curious mind that you're uh, thinking about, working on?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're definitely continuing to build out the operational vertical and working really hard on the medical side to help drive some of the IP. We really think that the medical side is going to be just phenomenally big. I mean, whatever the vehicle is, we're going to continue to invest because this doesn't feel like work to me. I mean, it requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice, hard work, willingness to deal with very difficult things. And there's going to be bumps in the road. And it's been, when we first met, I think I said to you that good thing I have a good dentist because I've had my teeth kicked down my throat 15 times in this space. Like every three months, something happens where you're like, just when you feel like you really feel like you're hitting your stride, but we now tackle that as sort of happy warriors. So it doesn't feel like work. It feels like everything we've worked to know and to own and to think about is now aligning and that the difficulty that exists is much harder for other people than us. I think over time, it could be a partnership with a much larger traditional private equity fund who wants to have an incredibly aggressive approach to cannabis and they have more capital than we have access to. It could be a lot of things, but I do think a partnership with maybe one of those traditional institutions that would surprise people, you know, that they're getting in and aggressively could be on in the offing. I mean, we've had a lot of discussions with those traditional sort of white shoe private equity firms, they have to be completely comfortable that, again, there are these really aggressive 22 people running around willing to consume information and, you know, sort of lift up every rock and sniff every piece of cheese, no matter how old it is. And I mean, when those partnerships could be in the offing, I do think we're going to invest. We want to build companies that change a space that is rapidly changing, that is going to be a normal industry eventually. And we want to have a role in shaping that. And I hope we're doing a good enough job that we do have that role. And nothing's gonna change in 21 or 22 or whenever. But I mean, it's weird. Some people have approached us some really large institutions. And as long as the right thing comes, we're open to anything. We don't have to be the big brother or we're David. We're not Goliath. I I don't even know who Goliath is. I mean, give me some rocks and a slingshot and some sandals and let's go.
0: So, for the other investors listening to this who are curious, whether it's an advisor, an institution, um, individual, What are some other resources? You mentioned a few in this podcast. It can be research-based, it can be data, it can be other investors you think are thoughtful in this space, but anything else people should seek out to try to become educated in this space in general?
1: I mean, I would definitely go to info at MeridaCap and sign up for our commentary. I hope you found it as an interesting, funny, engaging piece. I mean, we don't put out a lot when things get crazy, but I do have another one coming. The anthology of them is if someone wants to read 400 pages of everything that's happened to the space from 2016 and with a huge amount of humor and pop culture references and maybe a little reference to the Russian face-slapping championship, well, that's out there.
0: What's the website for the listeners?
1: It's info. So you just email info, I-N-F-O, at M-E-R-I-D-A, com, And we're happy to put you on the list. And we don't charge for it or anything. It's just about engaging with people. But I think there's a lot of resources now, like, New Cannabis Ventures is a really good resource to look at. Obviously, read the Yahoo Finance articles. I mean, every day there's an article on cannabis. And, you know, the other resource that I really like that I think are intriguing is subscribing to stuff like the International Cannabinoid Research Society, which puts out, like, what's interesting in forward-looking research for people who want to get more academically and really understand what cannabis is doing on the medical side. But then the whole point is there's not a lot of resources where you can get this, like, trustworthy sourcing. I mean, there's so many articles that are really just advertising or advertorials or something that mimics. I would be active on like investor hub or Yahoo Finance. There are a lot of articles, and um Kiplinger's just had an article, the top 10 stocks stone in 21. It was kind of funny. Our SPAC was in there and the way they said is like these guys were the early investors in Grogen. And if anyone can find a good deal in the SPAC. So the fact is Kiplingers is writing about it now. So I think what you want to do is you want to get your RSS feed set up, maybe put out some. Use cannabis or cannabis investing you know we're happy if you want to write us an info app to give you like five or ten buzzwords that you can put in your RSS feed and help you scaffold. I mean we really want to be a good resource and a good steward of the industry as well. It's not like oh if you don't invest with us, we don't care who you are. No, we really do want to have this like real engagement with people because the questions they ask might actually give us insight into what's next for us, and so we try to be a siphon and a reservoir of information and but we are a good resource for information. That much I could say. I think we are a really strong place to get on our list and get some of the information we put out. You know, my Twitter feed is at MeritaCap. I think the fact that a guy like you subscribes tells you that that's high praise indeed. You know, I think we put out some thoughtful pieces. We were the first people to talk about New Jersey maybe passing a workers' comp reimbursement law. That's good to know because there's six companies in Jersey that operate right now. So we're not putting out like actionable buy this stock, but we're putting out more. Here's something that's happening. Interesting in this space but it's an opaque space still. Yeah.
0: We'll add links in the show notes, mepfavor.com forward slash podcast to some of our favorite pieces that uh, Mitch and crew have authored. Mitch, as we wind down, what has been your most memorable investment during your career? It could be good. It could be bad. It could be cannabis related. It could be other. Anything come to mind?
1: Well, I mean, it's hard not to use Grogen as a, you know, whenever you can make 30 odd X on a company in three years that you built worked with a great group of people as family, sweated it out, then helped them file their S1, their first one, then helped them uplist. And now they're one of the most valuable cannabis companies. I mean, it's hard to say from four years in cannabis in a space that I used to joke with my wife that like, we built this out of nothing. We had no idea what we were doing. And we used to just laugh about it, right? This was built out of an idea. The company that we invested along that idea was this huge company. And people used to kind of ridiculous. And I'll tell you why I think Grogen really is the one. I mean, I've made some other great investments. I invested in an ad tech company that was sold for like 50X once. That was great for money. But this was one, that, there were a lot of people that came along with us in Grogen, and a lot of people have made a tremendous amount of money. And that is what I think I'm most proud about.
0: We've got to wind down here, but the uh, it actually gets to a fun topic we can talk about next time, which is when you speak to investors, and this is public, private, and not just related to cannabis, but so much of the returns are driven by the big outliers. And Michael Malbison has put out some research that looks at this in venture capital and public markets. And public markets, it's like 5% of stocks determine all the return. So you have to own these big winners. And the way the indexes do that is you're guaranteed to own them. But the way you end up having these outsized returns in private equity in VC is like you mentioned, these 30 baggers. The challenge that I would love to discuss, not today though, Mitch is how you think about position sizing once you have these big winners because they become such a large portion of a portfolio if you're sitting on a 30-bagger, but you see great potential, great growth in this company. That's where it is one day on the way to becoming a 50 or a 100-bagger, but it also becomes a huge part of your portfolio and possibly could we work and go back down to being a, a five-bagger. It's a good problem to have, of course, but it's a... I think it's a challenge for a lot of-
1: Always take some liquidity.
0: Yeah, to to scale out as you go up, rebalance. Uh, people love to think in binary terms they're in or out, but taking little chips off table with big winners is always good behavior. Well, good, we'll have you back on when it hits 50 and 100. Mitch, this has been a blast. I think we mentioned already, where do people go? They want to find out more info.
1: Well, meridacap.com, dot com, or you can just throw an email to info at meridacap.com.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, Meb, Thank you so much. As you know, I'm a big fan. One of the best podcasts. This is honestly like a, a small bucket list dream for me. So thank you so much for having me. Great. We'll do it again. All right, Meb, Thanks a lot.
0: Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the showcom We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Anywhere good podcasts are found. My current favorite is Breaker. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.